tonight we're going to be talking about conflict, uh, inner conflict, conflict with others. And uh, James, again, if you haven't been here for our series, James likes to get up in your face. He likes to tell you some things that uh, are not easy to hear, and, and he, don't, he don't pull punches. And so tonight we're going to be dealing with conflict, and we're going to read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. It says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust at war in your members? You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not, because you ask not. You ask and receive not, because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Amen. Church, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time to gather together. Lord, thank you for all those that fear of you, and thank you for those watching online right now. Lord, I pray that tonight's study would be a blessing. Lord, I pray that it would edify and encourage this church. Lord, I pray as, um, Lord, as I step in this pulpit to, to present the word, Lord, that you would empower me. Lord, you would anoint me and fill me. And Lord, that uh, as always, that you would pour into me so I can be poured out. Tonight's about you. And so, Lord, I ask that you would just take center stage. Lord, take control. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Um, it is no secret that we live in a world full of conflict. Uh, we, I mean, it's easy to have conflict with anybody at any time about anything. Uh, I mean, we can get our, our feelings hurt in an instance. We can, uh, we can fight over the dumbest things. Uh, I mean, you have people get in fist fights at McDonald's because someone forgot their chicken nuggets. I'm like, come on. If you're looking for fighting for something that small, you got problems. But the thing is, we all have the tendency to have conflict, to, to, to get angry, to be enraged. And I heard it said this way, To dwell above with the saints in love, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints I know, brother, that's another story. I mean, when we have to live here among each other, uh, you know, you have to try to learn to get along. And, and so James is telling us some of the reasons there's conflict. And he asks two questions in verse 1. In verse 1, he says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your own lusts that war in your members? So he says, From whence come war and fightings among you? So that's the question. And then he answers the question, with another question. He says, Come they not hence, even of your own lust that war in your members? So let me paraphrase what James is saying in verse 1. In verse 1 he says, Where do wars come from in our world? Don't they come from your own desires and selfishness and, and your own sinful hearts? He said, Isn't that where the root of conflict comes from? It's from within you. And so the, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. That's what James is saying. If you want to get to the heart of the problem, well, here it is. The problem's the heart. 
And the only way to change a person's heart is none other than Jesus. If you remember uh, a few weeks ago, we talked and James is talking about don't show, don't show favoritism. That if you're a believer, if you have true faith, there shouldn't be favoritism among you. Shouldn't be prejudice, racism among you. And, you know, I made a comment about the civil rights movement, or how, how amazing it was that that movement took place to try to bring about equal rights for all people. But the problem with the civil rights movement is government cannot legislate laws to change the heart. The problem with the way we treat people is not a government issue, it's a heart issue. And the reason we have conflict and warrings within ourselves and with other people is not a law issue, it's a heart issue. And so uh, what I believe is James chapter 3 and James chapter 4, I don't think they should be separated the way they are. I mean, the editors, they put the verse numbers and they put the chapter numbers in it. That was added later in in time. It wasn't in James's original letter that he wrote, obviously. They added it much, much later. And the reason why I think they shouldn't be divided like that, because if you read in chapter 3, by the way, if you're here last week, we talked about it, the power of the tongue. Remember, using wisdom in how you speak to people. Using wisdom in how you, because you can use the worldly wisdom. If you use worldly wisdom in the way that you talk, you're going to tear people down. If you use godly wisdom in the way that you talk, you're going to build people up. So there's two options. You can use worldly wisdom, wisdom or godly wisdom. Earthly wisdom brings conflict. Godly wisdom brings peace. And so that's what James is talking about in James chapter 3. And if you look at the very last verse of James chapter 3, James chapter 3 verse 18, this is what he says. He says, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So two times in verse 18, you see the word what? Peace. Peace. Twice he talks about peace. Then you get to chapter 4 verse 1. He says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your own lust that war in your members. What word is he used twice there? War. So in chapter 3, verse 18, he uses the word peace twice. You get to chapter 4, verse 1, he uses the word war twice. So I think James is still talking about there's two types of wisdom. There's godly wisdom, which brings peace. There's earthly wisdom that brings about war. Y'all see that? It's a, it's a continuation of thought from the old, te- from old chapter to the next chapter. And so what he's going to be talking about is there is a reason why there's conflict in our world today. This conflict has been around for a long time. Go back to Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel because Abel brought about the better sacrifice. Cain got jealous. He was upset that God would not receive his sacrifice. Well, the difference in the sacrifice was that Abel gave the proper one. Cain gave out of, his, out of his excess. He gave a fruit basket. That's bad. He went and p- picked some of his fruit and said, here you go, God. But Abel went to the flock and picked out his best and only sheep that would be, that would be uh, 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 recommended for that sacrifice. And so God turned down Cain's sacrifice of a fruit basket and took Abel's. And so Cain slew Abel. That, and ever since that conflict, conflict has just snowballed all through history. We see it time and time again. And so in James chapter 4... Verses 1 through 10, we see two main themes. Verses 1 through 5, we're going to see that there is the cause of our conflict. And in verses 6 through 10, we're going to see the cure for our conflict. All right? So if you have your handout, we'll go ahead and jump right in. We're going to start with point number one, the cause of our conflict. The cause of our conflict. Again, starting in verse 1, he says, From 
from whence came wars and fightings among you? Come they not thence, even of your lust that war in your members? You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not, because you ask not. You ask and receive not, because you ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? The very first three verses there, we see, and this is going to be a word you probably don't hear a whole lot, but one of the reasons we have conflict is the word hedonism. Hedonism. So that will be on the screen so you can know how to spell it. But hedonism, here's, here's what the word lust means. In that verse where it talks about the lust that is within you, that word lust is the Greek word hedon which is where we get our word hedonism. Hedonism is main goal. The, the main drive for hedonism is that you seek pleasure. The motto would be, if it feels good, do it. It don't matter if it hurts anybody. It doesn't matter if it's morally wrong. It doesn't matter uh, uh, it, it, what, what, what you're doing. As long as it feels good, do it. That is the motto for hedonism. It's all about pleasure. It's selfishness. Avoid pain at any cost. Find pleasure. And so desire, as James sees it, is, is people at war within themselves and each other. Because here's the thing, people's main desires, if you boil it down, are all the same. Their fleshly desires are for power, are for money, are for prestige, for possessions, the bodily lust that they have. Everybody wants the same thing in their, in their flesh. And so it naturally happens if everybody wants the same thing they're all eventually going to fight for it. There's going to be conflict. But that is earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom is, I want what the world has to offer me, whatever pleasure the world can give. Now, godly wisdom is, I'm going to seek God. Now, what happens when people seek God? Well, instead of trying to fight each other, what they find out is they love each other. And they try to find ways to serve each other. See, godly wisdom changes the whole perspective of a man. Worldly wisdom says, go and do what makes you feel good. Go and accomplish. Do what, if it feels good, do it. Godly wisdom says, love your fellow man. Serve them. Obey God. And if you think about this, this is interesting because in verse 1, we find that he's talking to believers here. He's talking to the church. And so what we're seeing is what we call Christian hedonism. People who think that the purpose of life is to have pleasure more than seeking God. That as long as I can be satisfied in my own desires, that's the main priority. Seeking God takes a back seat. And so James is talking to people who practice Christian hedonism, people who are still would say in their, in their, in their mouth, they would say, I know God, I love God. But with their lifestyle, they act as if God does not exist. And so they, they're pursuing their own lust. And, and so the Christian life, it does bring, it, it bring, it brings pleasure. There's joy in the, in the Christian life. Would you agree? Amen? I believe there's joy, trust in the Lord, and there's joy that comes to you. I believe that with all my heart. 
But you see people walking around like they've been baptized in lemon juice. But the reality is there is joy in the Lord. There is satisfaction and pleasure that comes from serving the Lord. And there's some people who think, well, you can't smile and be a Christian. Or the more bummed out you look, the more spiritual you are. That's not true. I believe believe 100% that being a Christian, there is joy and happiness. But here's the thing. People become so obsessed with this idea of happiness that they try to do whatever they can to get it. The Bible says, or let me say it this way, the Bible doesn't say, blessed are those who search for happiness. It doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness. No, what's it say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The word blessed means happy. And so happiness in our, earth, in our earthly life, it's like a moving goal. Sometimes, sometimes people think, well, if I just had more money, I'd be happier. More money, more problems. People think, well, if I just had me somebody in my life, if I had me a, just a sweet, a sweet pea or a honey bun to just walk around with me and hold my hand, if I just had someone who loved me, things would get so much better. And then you get you one. And you realize, you know what, this ain't as good as I thought it was going to be. Or maybe you have a difficult marriage. And in your mind, you think, you know what, if we just had kids, things might get easier. We might get along better. And then you have kids, and you realize that didn't help at all. And so we have this idea that happiness is always just out there. If I get this, then I'll be happy. And what we find out is happiness is like a carrot on a stick. It's just always dangling out there, but we never can quite reach it, right? It's just... And that's, that's the earthly wisdom. We think it's out there. We think if we can just get to it, we'll be happy. But godly wisdom tells us if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you will be blessed. And so the moment we try to force happiness into our life by pursuing earthly things, we, we, we find out that we can't really force happiness into our life. You can't fake being happy. Have you noticed that? Sometimes it's all over your face. You think you look happy, but you, you don't. Miss Belisa, I love her to death. Is she in here? Wave at me if you're in here. I think she goes home when I preach. Um, (laughs) She's going to watch this later and get so mad. Um, I love Belisa, but she she does this to me all the time. I'll I'll have a good day, and she'll look at me and look me dead in the face and say, Andrew, you look sick. Are you okay? I'm like, I feel great, uh, but now I'm self-conscious. Thanks, thanks for that. You know, but you can't you can't fake being happy. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but growing up, we always had that one relative that we never really wanted to go see. And I'm just going to make up a name. So if this is your name, I'm not picking on you, but let's say it's Great Aunt Ethel. All right. And I remember we'd had to go see Great Aunt Ethel sometimes, and uh, we didn't want to go Aunt Ethel's house. Her house smelled like mothballs. It was weird. She had that one old, like, 100-year-old dog covered in scabs, missing a tooth, cataract one eye, tongue hanging out. You're like, please just put this thing out of his misery. She didn't have no cookies in the house. Fig Newtons, that's what she had. Nobody likes a Fig Newton. But she would have Fig Newtons at her house. And you couldn't change the channel because she had to watch Young and the Restless. You know, and nobody wanted to go to Aunt Ethel's house. And I remember me and my sister being in the back seat going to Aunt Ethel's house. And my mama would get on to us because we were pitching a fit. You know, we're upset. 
we don't want to go to Aunt Ethel's. It smells weird. Her dog is weird. You know, it's, it's just, we didn't want to go. And I remember one time she turned around and she said, we're going to Aunt Ethel's house and you're going to have a good time. <laughs> have you ever tried to force yourself to have a good time? It don't work. You can't force happiness. You, you, can't, you can't manufacture happiness and satisfaction. Happiness is always the byproduct of something else. I go fishing because it makes me happy. My wife goes shopping because it makes her happy. I like hanging out with my kids because it makes me happy. Happiness is always the byproduct. But the happiness that we really want to find, that satisfaction, that contentment that satisfies the soul, it's not found in this world. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6.33. He says, But seek you first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. If you seek righteousness more than you seek happiness, you know what you'll find? Both. If you pursue righteousness more than you try to pursue happiness, you'll end up finding both. But... If you pursue happiness more than you pursue righteousness, you'll find neither. And that's the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Aim at heaven, get earth thrown in free. But if you aim at the earth, you'll get neither. And so you might be thinking, well, that don't make sense. You're telling me in order to find true happiness, I'm not supposed to search for it? (laughs) No, once you find God, he'll give it to you. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. Amen. The more satisfied you are in Him, the more glorified He is. And a byproduct of that is you'll find joy and happiness and peace. Amen. And James is saying in verse 2 that there is conflict and war among us because our desires are out of whack. They're out of whack. Look in verse 2. He says, you lust and have not and kill and desire to have, and you cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not, because you ask not. Now, I don't know if James is talking about literally here people killing each other, because again, he's talking about the church. He's talking to the church. I don't think people are in the church literally killing each other. Could be wrong. Um, but I think he's also referring back to what Jesus says. If you have hatred in your heart towards one of your fellow men, it's as if you've committed murder already. So he, he equates hatred with, with murder. And I believe everyone in here has murdered somebody. A few times today. Um, yeah. I, I kind of shudder to tell this story. But in, a, in the hopes of being transparent, I'm going to tell it. I, I had to go to Mobile. My, my Grammy passed away a few months ago. And I went to Mobile to be with my mom during that time. On my way back from Mobile, I was on I-65, about 50 minutes from the house. And... This dude in the left lane was not going the speed limit. He's going a little slower than the speed limit, and I, I usually go a little above the speed limit. And so finally there was an opening to go around him. And so I get in the right lane to go around him, and he takes it upon himself that he didn't want me to pass him. And so he floors it. Now he's barely going 70. Now all of a sudden he's going 85. Well, my car's a little newer than his. So I floored it, and I get in, I get in front of him. And about the time I get in front of him, a semi-truck comes from the right lane into the left lane, and I have to hit my brakes hard. Well, he's right on my bumper, and he has to hit his brakes hard. And I can read his lips, and uh, he's not happy. 
And uh, I was like, you know what? This ain't worth it. This ain't worth it. So I'm going to get on the right lane. He can go past me. Fine. I get in the right lane. He didn't want to get past me. He wants to ride next to me and yell at me. And he gives me double middle fingers and all that kind of stuff. And in my flesh, I feel it coming. And I didn't, I didn't quite lose my sanctification, but I came close. And I started calling him all those Christian cuss words. You know, like, you son of a Baptist preacher. If you weren't driving like a horse's patootie back there, we wouldn't be in this situation. So you can kiss my grips. You know, I'm just hollering at him. And, of course, none of us intimidating sounding, but I'm just hollering at him. And he's hollering at me. And he drives off. And would you guess what exit he turns off on? Exit 310. And I'm thinking, I bet he goes to Temple. (laughs) I mean, I was like, Lord, please don't let him go to Temple. But what happened in that moment? Man, I murdered somebody. Y'all, I got hatred in my heart. I, I had it coming up. And James is warning us. He says, listen. Because of this lust that's in your heart, because of these evil desires in your heart, there is a tendency where you can, you can literally get into a place where you start having hatred towards somebody, and that's going to cause war and tension and fightings among you. He says, you lust and you have not, and kill and desire to have and cannot obtain it. Here's the steps to falling into desire. Here's the steps. Step one, you start desiring something. Seems simple. You just have something you desire. Step two, well, that thing begins to consume your thoughts. You think about it all the time. You start daydreaming about it, how bad you want it. Step three, you start thinking of ways on how you can get it. You start scheming, creating a plan. I want this thing so bad. You start creating a plan on how you can get it. And the fourth step is as you start playing it out in your mind, one day you finally act on it. It comes to a head and you actually do it. Every crime and every sin that has ever been committed has come from desire first. And that desire originated in the heart. And after we fed that desire for a long time, it finally became an action. And James is saying the reason why there's fightings and quarreling and there's all this hatred is because your desires in your heart have been fed to the point that now you're craving things that are not biblical, craving things that are not godly, and you have this worldly desire inside of you that's causing all this friction with people around you. And what happens eventually is that craving for that desire, that pleasure, will shut down the door of prayer. And so what we see... Uh, the first point was hedonism, uh, or the, 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 what was it? What was number one? The cause of the conflict. The cause of the conflict, number uh, A, was hedonism. The second one was prayerlessness. Letter B, prayerlessness. So we have what James says in verse 3. We get to this point where we ask wrongly. He says, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. He says that you ask and receive not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it. And, he, and before that, in verse 2, he says, yet you have not because you ask not. So James tells us two things here. One of the reasons we don't get what we want is because we don't ask for it or we ask the wrong way. 
How can we ask the wrong way? Here's how we ask the wrong way. We pray for what we want instead of what God wants. We say, Lord, let my will be done instead of thy will be done. This is what Satan did. Satan said, my will, not thy will. And so we start looking for things for our own silly lust, our own, per, our own selfish desires. Uh, this is a silly illustration, but maybe you've been praying for a boat. I know I've been praying for a boat. I got a boat, but I'd like a bigger boat. But I, I, maybe you've been praying for a boat. God, give me a boat. You know how relaxing it is for me to get out in the water. You know it would be good for my soul. I get in nature, and all I do is think about you, Lord. I mean, I just want to be on the water. This is really your boat, Lord. I just Give me a boat, and I'll, I'll honor you with it. I'll take the youth group fishing, Lord, just give me a boat. And God says no, because he knows what you would do with that boat. There'll be a Sunday morning where the weather is just right, and the bite is on, and you'll be tempted. You know what? Missing church one day is not going to hurt nothing. And so sometimes God doesn't give you the desires of your heart because he knows what you would do with it if you got it. And so maybe you need to ask yourself, does my prayers reveal a hedonistic heart? A heart that only wants what I want, not what God wants. Here's another reason why there's conflict, worldliness. Look in verse 4. He says, You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The King James uses both adulterers and adulteresses in this verse, but in the Greek it was only in the feminine, adulteresses. That's how it was in original, adulteresses. And this idea both is from the Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, we find out that God was, was, was the husband of Israel. And so not only was he the heavenly father, but he was a heavenly husband. And so many times when Israel would betray God, he would say, you are, you're a wicked adulterers. In the New Testament, we are called the bride of Christ. Not only is he our heavenly savior, but he is the heavenly bridegroom. We are his bride. And so we see that we have this relationship. In other words, it speaks of intimacy. And so when God is saying, he's saying that, or what James is saying, is saying when you pursue sinful desires and sinful lust and things out of earthly wisdom, it's as if you're committing adultery against God. You're forsaking him. And, and what is the world? What, what, why is this world such a bad thing? Well, the world in, in the Greek is the word cosmos. And what that word means is, is the world systems. You know we live in a demonic system, a world that has been fallen, a world that is broken, a world that is completely against God. And so what James is saying, if you pursue this world more than you pursue God, that is adultery. And here's the three things that people look for the most. The pride of life, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes. What, 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 is, what is the lust of the flesh? Well, they're pursuing their passions. What is the lust of the eyes? They're pursuing their possessions. What is the pride of life? They're just doing whatever makes them feel good. That is the three, if you boil it down, that's the three things people seek out the most. So James is saying when you begin to love this world and its systems, you become an enemy of God. Ooh, that's a bad place to be, be an enemy of God. I would not want to be his enemy. God says, or James says, God will resist you and fight against you. Then in verse 5, he says, Do you think that the scripture saith in vain? The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. This, this verse right here is kind of, it's been under a lot of debate. Because first he says, do you think that the scripture saith in vain? Now they try to find out what, what scripture is James talking about here? Like what reference? And they don't know what scripture reference he's referring to here in this moment. But then he also says 
the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. So they start debating, well, what spirit is he talking about? The human spirit or the Holy Spirit? And here's my opinion on it. And I, I read a lot about it. I believe he's speaking here about the Holy Spirit. And the idea here is that the spirit of God that is dwelled in us jealously yearns for a heart that is devoted to God. That's what he's saying. He says, the spirit in you is yearning jealously for God. And this word lust that he uses here sometimes gets taken out of context. We think lust is sensual. Lust is, is sinful. But lust simply means desire. That you should have a heart that desires God. As the psalmist says, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after you, desires after you. So the idea here is that we should have a heart that desires God. And it's a good thing to desire God. It's an evil thing to desire the things of this world. Again, here comes the earthly wisdom versus godly wisdom. Things that are contrary to the word of God, things that are contrary to the will of God, that belongs to the world. And in verse 5, in verse 5, in that verse where it talks about the spirit in us that lusteth to envy, there's actually a modifier in the original Greek that's phthonos, uh, and this word means jealous. In other words, we have a jealous spirit in us. Now, jealous sometimes can sound sinful. Nobody likes to be jealous. But the idea here is God is jealous for you. In other words, he doesn't want anything to come between you and him. He is a jealous God. He has a jealous love for you. And again, if we are his bride and he is our bridegroom, then he loves us like a jealous husband. I I think marriage is great. I think husbands should have a jealous love for their wife. And I think wives should have a jealous love for their husband. They don't want their husband to go and love anyone else. They want their husband to love them and them alone. And and there's this trend in America right now which blows my mind called open marriages. Where now you can be married, but the wife can have a boyfriend. And the the husband can have a girlfriend. They can go on dates and do their... That blows my... What's the point of getting married at that point? When you get married, I'm saying I'm committed to you. I'll honor you. I'm loyal to you and to you alone. And this is the idea that this God of the universe, this all-knowing, all-powerful God, who is infinite in all his ways, who lives in me, also longs for my fidelity. He longs for my commitment. He longs for my love. And he wants me to love him and love him alone. He doesn't want there to be any, any interference, no rivalry. In the parable of the sower and the seed, we find that the sower throws out seed on four different types of soil. And one of them is a soil that looks to be good, but when the seed begins to take root, it says the thorns and the thistles grow and choke it out. And that's representative of the cares of this world, the pleasures and the riches of this world. The idea is this, that it's easy for the world to choke out your love for God. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You can't straddle the fence. God says go all in. Write me a blank check. I don't want there to be another lover in your life. I want you to love me. And and there should be a part of you that when you haven't been in the Word in a minute, that should long to get back into the Word. When you haven't been in prayer in a while, there should be something inside of you that is craving to talk to the Lord. When you haven't been in church for a little while, man, you just can't help. You want to get back in church. Am I right, Miss Wendy? 
Because I remember last year when Tracy was in the hospital, I tried to be up there as much as I could with her, but I didn't miss a whole lot of Sundays. Because I just wanted to be around God's people. I wanted to be in this house and I wanted to hear the word because my soul needed that in that moment. And there's people who didn't have the same opportunity I have where they have to be out of church for an extended period of time. And I know what it can do to your spirit. There should be something in you that draws you back to the Lord. And this is that, 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 that spirit in you that he's put you that's longing for him. He says it's jealous for him. And he's jealous for you. And it's lusting after him. It's desiring him. But God says, if you pursue anything else other than me, you become an adulterer. So things aren't looking too good. We got this problem. And so in verses 6 through 10, point number 2, he gives us the cure. The cure. Look at verses 6 through 10. He says, but he giveth more grace. I underlined that. He giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. There is only one cure for conflict. It is the grace of God. James says God gives more grace. So if God is giving us this command to be totally devoted to Him, to be completely sold out for Him, that seems like a pretty big demand. But guess what? He gives you the grace that's able to make that happen. He's going to supply the grace to make it happen. Everyone, and I don't think this is called, I don't think James is speaking about saving grace here. Uh, uh, Everybody comes to faith through grace. It's grace alone, faith alone that we come to, come to Jesus. That's as simple as that. Uh, everybody who gets saved, you get that grace. But we need, I don't know about you, but I need that daily grace. You know what I'm talking about? I need grace for just living. I, I need grace for help. I need grace in difficulties. I need grace when you get that unfavorable diagnosis. I need grace when someone you love passes away. I need grace when you have a prodigal child that's run away. I need grace when there's difficulty in a marriage. You need grace whenever there's a problem in your life. You need that daily grace. When, when Satan comes against me and the world is pressing down on me, guess what I need? I need some grace. Do you know how hard it is to live a holy, righteous life in a world that is trying to tear it apart? And so what do you need day by day? You need grace. Abundant grace. And the thing about grace is that a man can't receive it unless he realizes he needs it. You got to come to a place in your life where you realize I need grace. I need help. And in John 1.16 he, he says, and of this fullness have we all received and grace for grace. So he's talking about Jesus. We have received grace for grace. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, towards the end of that verse, he says, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. In other words, you can't out God's grace. God's grace is in abundance. And the scripture is telling us where there is a bunch of sin, there is a bunch of grace. And where there is overwhelming evil, there's an overwhelming grace. He gives more grace. For a daily need, there's a daily grace. For a sudden need, there is a sudden grace. For an overwhelming need, you have overwhelming grace. It's an abundant kind of grace. There's an artist that one time, he submitted a drawing, a picture, a painting. He submitted a painting. And it was of Niagara Falls. And he put it in his art gallery, but he didn't name it. He just submitted it, 
And so the art gallery named it themselves. And so they come up with a name, and they named it More to Follow. That's what they named this painting of Niagara Falls. Now, if you know anything about Niagara Falls, it spills over billions of gallons of of water every year. And it's been doing this for thousands of years. It's more than enough to supply for the people below. And I think this is a perfect uh, picture of grace. There is saving grace. There is sustaining grace. There is daily grace that reaches down to us every single day. And guess what? There's more to follow. There's more than enough. Paul gives us a glimpse of this. In 2 Corinthians, he's talking about a thorn in his flesh. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, we find out that he gets a vision of heaven. He gets called up in paradise. He gets this awesome vision. And because God gives Paul this awesome vision, God decides, i got to balance out Paul's life with some pain. And so he gives Paul a thorn in his flesh. And, and, and you may ask, why? why would God have to balance out his life? Like, that doesn't make sense. Why would he have to bring him about some pain? Because if Paul only had the chance to see paradise, if that was what Paul got to experience was paradise and paradise only, he would have become proud. He would have became a little bit arrogant. And you know what God does to the proud? He resists the proud. And so in that, if Paul became proud, then his ministry would have become useless. And so to balance it out, God allows there to be a thorn in his flesh. It says, There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Do you know God may give you a painful experience in your life to humble you? To put things in perspective for you? And so Paul prayed about this thorn. He knew God gave it to him, but he didn't know right away it was to humble him. He just knew this was given to me by God. And, and so some people pray, or some people believe that this thorn in the flesh could have been a person that was just there to antagonize and, and to kind of you know, make things difficult for Paul. Some think that this could have been a mental thing, that Paul maybe suffered from depression. And some think this was a literal painful ailment that he had, a medical condition where daily he was in pain. But whatever it was, it was uncomfortable for Paul. And Paul says, get it out of me. I don't want this in my life no more. And, and I think that's how we pray, isn't it? God, take the pain away. Get it away from me. Let it, God, please get rid of it. And so Paul prays three times. The first time he says, God, please take away the thorn. God says, no. Second time, Paul says, God, please take away the thorn. God says, no. I can see Paul getting a little bit Pentecostal, getting a little bit more charismatic. In Jesus' name, Lord, I beseech you, I claim it. I claim it now, Lord. Bring it out of my life. God says, no. (laughs) Three times he prays. And three times God says, no. And I, I can't imagine. But then, after the third time he said, no, God tells him something. In verse 9, he says, listen, Paul, I'm not going to take it away. Instead, I'm going to give you something. Guess what he gave him? Grace. Look at 12, verse 9, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. 
For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory or boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul's whole perspective changed that moment. He said, so you're telling me when I am weak that, that, that I'll be made strong, that you'll be strong in me. And, and if I boast in my infirmities, if I boast in my weakness, then you'll pour your power out of my life. He's like, okay, God, release your Niagara Falls on me because I don't need some grace to get by with this thorn in my flesh. What it caused Paul to do is in those moments when that thorn in the flesh became too much for him to bear, it caused him to run to the throne of grace time and time again. So in Paul's weakness, he would be made strong and that he could boast on the power of God. And so this is grace that he's supplying to us. That, that James is talking about is an overwhelming grace. In verse 6 he says, but he giveth more grace. So how do we tap into this grace? Let me give you five quick things on how we can tap into God's grace. All right. Number one, verse seven. Number one, submit yourself to God. Submit yourself to God. Verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit is a military term that means to fall into rank. It means at some point you got out of rank and you got to step back in. It's submit. You're getting back in line. And so the essence of sin is selfishness. It's all about my will be done, not thy will be done. And, and so when we submit, we are bringing ourselves back into submission to God. In Mark chapter 10, we have this story about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And he asks Jesus a question. He says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, well, you've got to know and follow the Ten Commandments. And this rich young ruler says, easy, done that, been doing it. Which is pride and arrogance because ain't nobody been doing it. Right. But he thinks himself to be a pretty good person. So he says, I've been I've been doing that. And so this man was successful. He was wrong. He was young. He was a he was a ruler. He had a good business. Obviously, he's made it. And many times people can base how good they are in life based about what they have accomplished in life. And so this guy's like, you know what? I've done all this stuff. But one thing I still don't have, I, I still want to know how to get eternal life. And so obviously he knew something was missing in his life. Something was missing in his heart. So he's like, you know, what? I'm going to go to Jesus. I'm going to find out what else can I add to my portfolio to make it happen where I can have eternal life. And so he goes and asks Jesus, and Jesus says, we'll do the Ten Commandments. He said, been doing that? He says, well, one thing you don't have. One thing you lack, young man. He says, go sell everything you got. Give it to the poor. And then come back and follow me. Well, what happened? Says the rich young ruler walked away sad. Why did he walk away sad? Because Jesus put his finger on the heart issue of the young man. This young man was prideful and he, was, he had an idolatrous heart. He worshipped his possessions. It wasn't that Jesus wanted this man's possessions. He wanted that man's heart. And the thing that had that man's heart was his possessions. And so Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want to know what it's like to have eternal life, then you got to get rid of all this stuff and come back and follow me because right now this stuff has your heart, but I need to have your heart. He put his finger on the issue of his life. I have an illustration because I think a lot of times we're we're a lot like this. We have our heart, but we're kind of like a like a three year old sometimes. I don't know if your kids do this, but one of my kids does this for sure. They don't like their food touching. Your kids, you know what I'm talking about? The pea juice better not touch the chicken. 
The corn better not touch the mashed potatoes. Don't put the bread on top like nothing can touch, right? But sometimes we do this with our heart as well. We'll say, okay, you know what? Here I have my private life. And things are going good right now in my private life. I, I've got a, you know, I got some hobbies I like to do by myself. I got a couple Netflix shows I like to watch. My private life, I'm doing good right here in my private life. And then, you know, my work life. In my work life, I like my job. You know, I, I got a good living. I, I got good insurance. It, it provides for my family. I like the people I work with. My work life is going pretty good. And, you know, my social life, I got good friends. I like hanging out with my friends. We go places. We have bonfires. We'll go fishing together. I have a pretty good social life. All of that's good looking good, too. And then, and then we have our home life. My kids are well behaved, they're making straight A's in school. My son, man, he's playing baseball and doing things like that. My daughter, she's trying to learn how to, cl- how to cook, she's still learning, um, but she's trying. Uh, but, you know, I got good kids. They, they love us, they respect us, they're doing good. And then, and then down here is my spiritual life, and that's where I go to church. I love my church, man. The church is good people over there. Man, I got a good preacher up there. He's on sabbatical. He'll be back soon, but uh, I got a good church, a good, good family at church. Man, I love it. I love it. And here's what we do. We kind of treat this like our plate of food. We really don't want these things to touch. And we delegate God's role in our life to right here. We say, God, I, I can take care of my private life. I can, I can handle my work life. I got that under control. My home life, man, everything's going good there. I mean, I, I got my friends, that's good. But you, you can stay right here. Yep. Don't touch this other stuff. Yep. You're, you're right here. Amen. And this is what happened with the rich young ruler. He, just, he didn't want to give God his whole heart. Just a piece of it. And Jesus says, no, sir, if you're going to follow me, I need your whole heart. You don't just delegate me down here. And so what Jesus does, when you give him your heart, he takes the whole plate and starts mixing everything together. He wants to be in your private life. He wants to be in your social life. He wants to be in your work life. He wants to be in your home life. He wants to be in every part of your life, not just one part. He just don't want to be delegated to one little area of your life where you show up on Sundays like he's, like he's got custody of you and you only see him on weekends. No, he wants, he wants full-time custody. He wants your whole life, not just part of your heart, your whole heart. And so what we have to learn when it comes to this idea of submit to God, as James says in James chapter 4, verse 7, submit yourself to God. He's saying, go all in. God, take it. Take the whole heart. Take control of my life. Every part of me. The hidden parts, the public parts, the, the everything that, that you know about me that nobody else knows about me. God, it's yours. That's what he's saying when he says submit yourself unto God is to go all in. Hold nothing back. And this is hard. You know why it's hard? Because we like control. We like to stay in control of things. But Jesus says, submit. So if you want to tap into God's grace, first thing you got to do is submit. Submit yourself to him. Go in, all in. Write a blank check. Put it on the table. Say, I'm all in. Then we continue in verse 7. He says to resist the devil. That's, that's number two. We want to, the second way you can tap into God's grace, resist the devil. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Did you know there really is a devil? And he really don't like you. He don't. 
And the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, For we wrestle not against the flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of, against, of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And, and in the next few verses, he's going to start talking about the, the, the armor of God, putting on the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the, 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 the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And he says, I've equipped you to fight the devil. And, and here's the thing. The devil don't like you. He's trying to destroy you. He's trying to derail you. He's trying to distract you. And so here's the issue. If you ain't run into the devil in a long time, it's probably because you and him are walking the same direction. He don't want you to succeed. And so the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I don't know if you notice this, but where every time God gives a command, there's a promise that follows. Resist the devil, he will flee. And this is what that means. To resist the devil means that you are pursuing God. And so as you're looking towards God's face, you get to see the backside of Satan because he's running. As you walk towards God, he's running from you. That's what that means. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Pursue God, he will flee from you. Now, the third way you can tap into God's grace, verse 8, you got to draw nigh to God. Verse 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, here's another command with a promise. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Here's the idea. If you feel far from God, guess who's moved? It wasn't Him. It wasn't Him. The idea is this. If you just turn to God, He'll start walking towards you. If you take one step towards God, He'll take two steps towards you. If you start walking towards God, he'll start running towards you. The idea, you draw nigh to him, he will draw nigh to you. We remember the prodigal son, the whole story there. Young boy comes to his father, says, give me my inheritance, everything I'm due. And he goes and the father gives it to him. He goes and spends it all on righteous living, right? Hedonism. Remember, selfishness. If it feels good, do it. That's what he went and did. He went and spent it on everything he wanted. Then he ran out of money. When he ran out of money, he ran out of friends, too. And now he finds himself in the pig pen and he starts thinking to himself, you know what? How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough? I got a plan. I'm going to go back to my daddy. I'm going to tell him if you'll just hire me as a servant, I will come back home. And so he makes his journey back home. And we know what happens as he was a long way off. The father was watching. The father was looking. And from a long way off, he starts running towards his son. This is the only time in the Bible it depicts God as running. And he starts running towards his son. And in that culture, we, you've probably heard it before, it's undignified for a man to run. Because they are wearing these long dress-like robe things. And so for a man to run, he would have to, this is where it comes to that saying, gird up your loins. He would have to pull up his little dress and tuck it into his belt like a miniskirt. And he's showing his bare legs. And his daddy was high-stepping out towards him. 
And, and, and this, this idea, he was running, he girded up his loins and ran to his son. And his son begins to speak. That speech that he's been practicing this whole time. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And the father just embraces the son and begins to kiss him and smother and kisses and gives him rings. And they throw a party and kill the fattened calf. And man, they get down. And he says, my son who was dead is alive again. He who was lost is now found. And they had a big celebration. Do you see the picture? You take a step towards God and he'll come running towards you. That's what James says. You want to tap into his grace? He says, draw nigh to me and I will draw nigh to you. Maybe you've realized tonight I've drifted a little bit from God. Well, I can just encourage you. Take a step towards him. He'll come running back to you. Number four, this kind of sounds weird. You want to tap into God's grace? You got to be miserable. Sounds funny, but I'll explain it. In verse eight and nine. He says, draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. So now James is talking to sinners. He's talking to the church, but he's talking to people who are sinners within the church. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted. That word afflicted means be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Cleanse your hands, he tells them. That means... That's in relation to your actions. He says, Pur- purify your hearts. That's, that's in relation to your attitudes. He said, you've got to get your actions and your attitudes back in line. Amen. And he says, be afflicted, be miserable. If you're a child of God and you become worldly and sinful, it's not a time to laugh. It's not a time to celebrate. It's not a time to be happy. If you're a child of God and you're in a sinful lifestyle and you've got some unconfessed sin in your life, it is no time to laugh and smile. James says you need to weep and to mourn. James here is talking about repentance. There is joy in the Christian life, but not where there is sin. Not where there is sin. If you want comfort, if you want joy... If you want to tap into God's grace, it starts by being broken over your sin. Amen. King David, after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he had her husband killed to try to cover it up, he wrote in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 3. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. And then in verse 12. He says restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And uphold me with thy, with thy free spirit. You know what David is saying? His sin had caused him to lose his joy. He's in a place of mourning. Amen. Weeping. Sorrow. It drained him of his joy. Then you skip down to verse 17. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. When we are living a life contrary to God, it should not be a time of rejoicing and happiness. Luke chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus says, Woe unto you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. When was the last time you've been broken over your sin? When's the last time the reality of your sinfulness in the view of a holy God actually became real? 
where you became broken. And the thing is, if it's been a long time since we've been broken, it's probably because we forgot how bad we used to be. When I get, man, there's sometimes we get in these worship songs in here and I start thinking about what I used to be and how God has transformed me and who I am now, what God has done. I can't help but weep. I become so thankful over God's forgiveness and mercy and grace over my life. And there's times where I get so discouraged in my own life because I, I, may, I may put off asking for forgiveness in my life and I start feeling that distance from God. And I don't like feeling that distance and so I just cry out to God, God forgive me. How, when's the last time you have really, really been broken? And it's completely possible for our heart to become callous to it. And so maybe if you're wondering why are you in conflict with other people, why do you have this conflict inside of yourself, it may be because you're out of harmony with God. And it's causing conflict and chaos around you. And as you step back into harmony with God and you begin to weep and mourn over your sin, you begin to submit to Him, you begin to pursue Him, you start realizing these other relationships around you begin to figure themselves out. Number five, last one. How do we tap into God's grace? You've got to humble yourself. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Amen. Notice it didn't say humble yourselves in the sight of men. He don't care. He wants you to humble yourself in front of him. Amen. Humble yourself to me is what God is saying. Humble, and this is an important point. He says humble yourselves. And I think this is an important point because you do not want God to humble you. He's like, I'm giving you opportunity to humble yourself. But if I have to humble you. That ain't going to be good. I don't know about you, but I've been humbled before by God. And I didn't like it. He says, humble yourself. Don't wait for God to humble you. And the command here again, the command and the promise. The command is humble yourself. What's the promise? He will lift you up. What is God saying? He says, well, the way up is you first got to get down. That's what he says. And then when you're brought down, he will lift you up. There it is. So tonight, in your handout, I've given you some questions to ponder, some things to think about. Do you have a heart that's submitted to God, completely submitted? Remember the little illustration I gave, or are you kind of just giving them pieces? And you're saying, God, I don't want you to touch this other stuff. This other stuff's my stuff, but you belong right here. You can have this part, but this other part, that's my, that's my stuff. Do you have a heart that's completely submitted to God? Do you find satisfaction in Him? I've, I've asked this question here before. I believe if I asked and, and got, a, got a poll before, if I asked you a fair of you, how many of you love God? Raise your hand. I'm sure everybody in this room, raise your hand. I love God. Yes, absolutely. And if I ask you a different question, if I ask you the question, are you satisfied in Him? It's a different question. In other words, is it God plus something else? God plus family, God plus your wife, God plus your husband, God plus your kids, God plus your job. God, is it, do you need something else to make you satisfied, or is God enough? If everything was stripped away, and all you had was your relationship with the Lord, would that be enough? So, do you find satisfaction in Him? Are you only giving God pieces of your heart? And is there any part of you that isn't surrendered? Maybe God, like that young rich ruler, God has put his finger on your heart and said, hey, this one thing right here you still haven't let go of. You need to let go of this. Surrender. Submit yourself unto God. Because here's the thing, we live in a world with conflict. 
And even in the church, we have conflict. But what James is trying to tell us, he's saying, here's what it looks like. Earthly wisdom pursues earthly things. When you pursue earthly things, you're going to find conflict. Uh, 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 Godly wisdom pursues godly things. When you pursue godly things, you'll find peace and contentment. Which one do you want more? The world can give you temporary satisfaction, but it'll give you long-term conflict. God will give you eternal satisfaction and long-term joy. I think it's better over here. And he says, so, check yourself. Check your heart. Submit to me. Flee from the devil. Serve others. Love others. Pray. Get in line. And let's go. Amen. Let's pray.